Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the AAMFT Podcast. Eli here with you where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. have a great show in store for you today, but before I tell you about our guest, I'd like to remind you to visit aamft.org. And right there on the main page, you can see that registration is now open for AAMFT 19. That's the annual conference and exhibition taking place August 29th through September 1st in Austin, Texas. AAMFT makes its way back to Austin, who has hosted the conference several times before, and there is a great conference in store for you. You can see all of the workshops, speakers, and activities going on. And if you've never been to a conference before, it is the best way to experience all AAMFT has to offer. I will be there recording some podcasts. I'd love to meet some listeners and fellow MFTs, and I will be presenting on Common Factors with my friend and colleague, Adrian Blow, on Sunday, September 1st. Now, let me tell you about our guest, family therapy pioneer, Harry Aponte. Dr. Harry J. Aponte is a professor in Drexel University's Couple and Family Therapy Department. He also has a private practice in Philadelphia. Harry has written several important articles and chapters in addition to his book, Bread and Spirit, Therapy with the New Poor. He has lectured and conducted workshops throughout the U.S. as well as Canada, Latin America, Europe, and Asia. Among other honors, he received the Award for Distinguished Contribution to Family Therapy and Practice from the American Family Therapy Academy in 1992 and the Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Field of Marriage and Family Therapy from the AAMFT in 2001. He's also a distinguished alumnus from the Menninger Clinic. Please welcome to our program, Harry Aponte. Okay, Harry, welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Uh, We want to know how it all started. All right, well, um, um, we're going back to, uh, to 1960, um, I had uh, graduated from uh, the Fordham School of Social Work and um, worked for a year um, at Catholic Charities in New York. And then I um, saw an advertisement for a postgraduate training from the Menninger Clinic and Topeka, Kansas, which I um, knew very little about, but it sounded very important, and I didn't want to get some advanced training. So I applied for a year's postgraduate training there and uh, in social work, uh, did that, and then they offered me a job there. So then I settled in uh, in Topeka, uh, and that was in 1960 and um, worked there, um, connected to their C.F. Menninger Memorial Hospital as social worker in one of the units. They, had, they were divided into four units. And um, during the time that I was there, uh, Virginia Satir, um, Jackson, uh, they came and they spoke about family therapy. I had also... Uh, picked up Ackerman's book and uh, got interested in family therapy through that also. And um, 
And then they asked me to, uh, the Menninger Clinic asked me, the Menninger Bulletin asked me if I would review uh, Sal's book, Families of the Slums, um, which I did for their, for their journal. Okay, so I had um, done enough reading uh, about uh, family therapy that I got interested in the, the fun basic concept of working with systems and working with the family as a whole, and, uh, but there was no one at the, at the Menninger Clinic who um, knew anything about family therapy or was interested in it. Um, so then I just had to invent my own version of, of family therapy. And a friend of mine, uh, a guy from, uh, originally from Philadelphia, Irv Zettner, um, uh, I got him interested in it, and then we started to experiment with it. And I experimented with it at, uh, at the hospital, working with the families of the patients there, and including the patient with the family, which they had not done. And uh, we were very successful um, in that particular unit. We had uh, much more active participation by the patient and the family, and um, uh, the psychiatrist who was in charge of it, or Peter Novotny, was very enthusiastic about it because he was having good results. So, got into that, and, um, and then uh, uh, I went to a, uh, I attended an ortho conference uh, and I think, if, if I remember, I have a very vague recollection of it, but I remember, I think Virginia was presenting, and Maury Bowen was presenting, and Braulio Montalvo was presenting, who was working with Mnuchin. Um, and I listened to all of them, and I thought, you know, I really like what I'm hearing from uh, Braulio and uh, their structural family therapy stuff. It makes sense to me. And then they were also working with families that reflected my own family background with uh, disadvantaged families and uh, minorities with Puerto Ricans and African Americans. And uh, so I began the correspondence with Braulio uh, because I was uh, working on an article that I wanted to develop around the use of family therapy in the, in the hospital. And what I got back from Braulio was, an in, actually it wasn't Braulio who responded, it was Sal who responded. He said, hey, I just came in from New York, I'm at the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic, and I'd like you to, to join us here. And What year was that, Harry? That would have been uh, 1967. Um, and but it also so happened that I was uh, in psychoanalysis there. You know, they at Menninger's they encourage you to, if you were a staff member, to get into uh, your own analysis. So I did that, and I was I had been already in there for several years. And I said, Sal, I you know I'm in the I don't want to drop my uh, work in psychoanalysis. It's um, uh, actually, what I literally said to him was that, you know, if I meet some little old lady that looks like my mother, I'm going to be a useless therapist, so I need to finish my psychoanalysis. Um, so he said, okay. So a year later, he contacted me again and said, are you now ready to come to Philadelphia? And I said, yes, I am. And so I got to Philadelphia in the fall of 1968. And by the following year, he asked me if I would uh, take responsibility for the, um, uh, for the clinical work because he was focusing on the training. Um, and so then I, I took the charge of the uh, clinical work at the Child Guidance Clinic at 17th and Bainbridge. And... Um, uh, and a few years later, then the clinic moved to the University of Penn campus with a new building and a close association with Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And when we moved there, then he officially made me the director of the outpatient department. Um, and because uh, uh, we, we also had an inpatient when we, went, when we moved to... Um, uh, to the Penn campus, and um, 
a few years after that, then uh, Sal stepped down from being director of the Child Guidance Clinic, and I was invited by the board to be their, their, the director of the of the whole clinic. And so then we were then implementing using uh, family therapy concepts of working with outpatient and with um, with inpatients, and. Um, um, uh, I guess what I, uh, if you want to really understand what I was trying to do, um, w when I got involved at at uh, 17th and Bainbridge in in uh, in overseeing the outpatient work, I wanted to expand the uh, structural family therapy work that we were doing into the community. Um, we were working with families, but we had no connection with the community whatsoever. Uh, and uh, and actually, there was a group from the community that was um, challenging the clinic to uh, allow the community to advise and even direct what we did with the community. Um, so uh, Sal asked me to deal with them. Um, I then engaged them, and um, uh, they uh, were um, asking to have more control over what we did in the clinic than I was about to concede to them. And um, so I said, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I want to work in the community, but not on your terms. Um, and so I disconnected our relationship with them and then I um, I went into the community looking for you know the leadership because this this guy from the community Jim Lester raised money uh, bought a building and set it up for for classes and for and then he got uh, s students from the Department of Education from the University of Penn uh, African-American students who, uh, and then they came in as the teachers and, uh, and then the kids, we had the names of all the kids who were chronic uh, uh, absentees from the, from, from the community and he contacted them and got a slew of them to, uh, to come and the, re the community responded, the kids responded. I mean, these are kids who were not attending school, and I used to watch, and he would lock the door at 3.30 if they didn't show up, and, and that was it. I used to see them running to get to the school. And we got these kids, and we tested them in, in, in the clinic, and then after a few months, we tested them again. They did very well academically. They loved the schooling there. And uh, then we moved to the uh, to the uh, to the new building in uh, on the University of Penn uh, campus, and um, I got Jim then to become a part of our staff uh, at at the hospital, uh, at, at, and and um, and we set up the whole program right there. The parents loved it. The kids loved it. And it was very successful. In the meantime, I, I had also instructed our outpatient department that when a school contacted us and they wanted to make a referral, that I said, we'll, make, we'll, we'll be glad to take the referral if we can first meet with, with the principal of the school or vice principal, the teacher who's making the complaint, the kid and the family, in the school itself. Because we want to see what the interaction is between that kid and the school and the teacher in their environment, and we began to do that, and it was that was very successful also because we we had a perspective and we had a, an immediate cooperation from the school that we never had before. You had the buy-in from the school and the parents. Absolutely, and and we we understood what was going on in the school in a way we never could see understand it before. Um, and if the school said, well, we can't, you know, arrange our schedule to have principal and, and teachers and all those involved with that, we would say, I'd say, fine, if, you know, if you're too busy, then we'll call us back when you can arrange it. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we, got a call, we got calls back and they arranged it, and that was very successful. I, I wrote an article on, 
on that, the family school interview. Uh, very enthusiastic about that. And then we try to set up relationships with other schools uh, to do the same kind of thing. So the whole idea was that, you know, that family therapy, if we're going to work with disadvantaged families, had to include not only the family, but it needed also to include the community. We contacted the churches, we contacted the schools, um, and uh, it was a very active um, and engaged kind of thing. Um, uh, I, I was the director of the clinic for four years. After that, I, 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 I went on, on my own, but I had already started... Um, uh, privately to, uh, to get interested in the use of self. Yes, and, I want to talk about that. Uh, yeah. Before we get to that, um, when you were doing this work, it was in the golden age of family therapy. Did you realize at the time, since you were in the middle of it, the epicenter or one of the epicenters in Philadelphia, did you see this as something that was just local or did you see this as an evolution, a new way of thinking, not just systemically, but also uh, leaving the therapy room, going into the community, meeting families where they're at? Did you see it as a sea change and, and something revolutionary for the field of mental health? Uh, you know, to me, uh, this is what, what family therapy needed to be if we were going to work with disadvantaged families. And, um, and it worked at Child Guidance, and I, I remember also, I don't remember the name of the clinic, some clinic in, in another community outside of Philadelphia. They heard about it, they invited me to come in and work with them, and, um, and we experimented there also. And part of the experiment was, can we get, can we get some of these families that are sending the kids to, to the clinic, can we get them to meet together? And they can support each other as well as coming in for sessions with us as individual families. So we worked to, I worked with them to expand, to add that dimension also of the community. So I really wanted us to be fully engaged. I wasn't thinking about, you know, who else was going to be interested in it. Um, uh, but uh, I, 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 I try to make it work wherever I had an invitation and an opening. I did, I did some work with Monica McGoldrick. Um, I used to travel to the New Brunswick area, and we made a videotape, uh, which ended up becoming a chapter in my book, Bread and Spirit, of working with, with, a, um, with a school as well as with and, uh, school personnel with family so that we had an eco, I, I called it at that time, an eco-structural approach to, uh, to family therapy. And talk about, Harry, how your own family of origin experience as a Puerto Rican growing up in New York, in New York City, I believe it was Harlem. Tell us about how that influenced not only your identity, but your ability kind of to reach out to these underserved populations. Well, you know... Um, you know, I, I basically grew up um, in in Black Harlem. I, I still remember the address, you know, 104, 105-124th Street, right around the corner from the Apollo Theater. And uh, we lived there for a number of years, and then from there we uh, moved to the South Bronx, um, and uh, which was a mixed community in terms of, of, of um, ethnicity. There were... African Americans, Jewish, uh, Italians, and and others mixed in in that in that community. Uh, so I, you know, I I was very aware of 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 community life um, uh, from my childhood because you know I my parents didn't really engage with the community that much. They were involved in, with, with, the, with the, their Puerto Rican friends. I had to get out there and learn English. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't speak English. I, I, my original, my, my mother tongue is Spanish. I never spoke English until I went to school, you know. But I, learned, but I also was learning it in the street. So I was very much connected with the street, and that's where I kind of grew myself up. My parents were not uh, intermediaries between me and, and the community. It, I was doing this by myself. 
So it was really in my blood. So when it came time to do, to be responsible for offering services to the community, I, I naturally, you know, thought of, well, if you're going to work with these families, these families are dependent upon the community. These families are dependent on the local hospital. That would have been Lincoln Hospital in, in, in the South Bronx. They're dependent on the public schools. They can't afford to go to a private school. Okay? They're dependent on public welfare. Uh, so whatever services they received, whether it was uh, medical or, or uh, educational services, or you know, uh, or just funding just to survive in terms of welfare, uh, they were dependent on what was official, what came from government, what came from the community. Uh, so I was aware of that. They're not, they didn't have the money to be to independently decide we want to live in this neighborhood and go to that hospital and go to that particular private school. They didn't have that option. So that I knew that if we're going to make a difference in, in, in their lives, we had to take into consideration their community because I was part of that and I was part of that dependence on on whatever was 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 in the community, so it came rather naturally to me, you know. I mean, it it, it wasn't a stretch of my imagination whatsoever. It's just this is what I knew. It also made you a credible source to uh, populations and minorities that many times can be skeptical of, of mental health services and providers. It, it's like you had a uh, kind of. A kindred spirit in knowing what that was like. It's interesting when we think of you know structural family therapy in one house in one case being very technique driven. You're unbalancing, you're restructuring families. And another thing, when we see Sal Mnuchin, it's very much the use of himself. There's only one Sal Mnuchin. There's only one Virginia Satir. And and your work uh, over the years progressing from. Uh, this eco-structural approach to much more focused on person of therapist issues. Could you talk a lot about that evolution and maybe some of our listeners uh, that are unfamiliar kind of with the evolution of your work, um, talk about that and really the, the, the growth uh, that you underwent as a therapist and how it led to your, um, the evolution of your, 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 what you're working on now. Well, uh, what's interesting about that for me is that uh, it, it, it was a reversal kind of um, experience that I had that opened up the, the, uh, the whole theme to me. Because when I went to get this postgraduate training in 1960 um, at the Menninger Clinic, um, that was the first time I ever met white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to actually talk to. You know, I mean, white people to me were Jewish, Italian, and Irish. I mean, those were the, the, the neighborhoods that we had in, 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 uh, um, uh, in, in the part of the South Bronx that, that I lived in. But I was, me, I was seeing that we had, at Menninger's, they had actors there, they had governors, they had heads of major corporations. I mean, this was a whole world that was completely new to me and completely intimidating to me. And I, re and I painfully remember trying to relate to these people uh, and feeling quite, you know, like they came from another world. And I'm sure they experienced me in the same way. Uh, so it, 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 it took a while for me to be able to, to really see them as human beings rather than caricatures, you know, as important, powerful, rich people. Uh, and as I began to relate to them as human beings, I also realized what a transformation I was going through because I was being inducted into another dimension uh, of our society. Right? So then when, when Sal invited me to come to Philadelphia, it was a relief. I said, oh my God, I'm coming back home. I'm going to be working with my people. Okay? Um, but I, I came back with that same lesson. You know, there really is something about relating to people, but relating to them in terms of their, their context, their cultural context. And, uh, and you have to understand that it, uh, I had taken it for granted 
in terms of the disadvantaged families and minority families. I mean, I remember doing workshops at, uh, after I got to the Child Guidance Clinic and we had a reputation there working with disadvantaged families and I was doing, um, uh, I'd be invited to do workshops uh, around the country and they would often, the topic was, you know, do structural family therapy for us and they would get me minority families to interview, to demonstrate and I, can, I, I, I will never forget you know, going to one place and they said, well, we have this African-American family uh, and, uh, you know, the problem is, you know, you're going to be demonstrating it, but these people don't talk. And I said, what do you mean they don't talk? <laughs> well, maybe they don't talk to you, but they, they talk. And, and I had that experience in several places, but what would happen is I would sit down with them and, you know, immediately we clicked and immediately they opened up and the tears came and, and the emotions came and, and we made connection because these are my people. This is who I grew up with. You know, we had no problem talking. We had no problem connecting. We had no problem understanding what we were dealing with, right? And so, uh, but then I was also quite conscious of the experience that I had when I went to Menninger's and I was dealing with these white people uh, for coming from very different cultures and socioeconomic status. And I realized, you know, we've got to pay more attention to this. And what does it take in order to bridge the gap between ourselves and whoever they may be on the other side of us? And so I, I took that as so I was sensitive to that. And when I was working at, um, at the Child Guidance Clinic, I began giving that more thought um, and and then talking about it and I began writing about it but the Child Guidance Clinic they were not interested in that. Uh, they were still interested in, in Sal's work with technique and uh, the whole issue of you know what are your what's your culture what values do you do you uh, carry within you what perspective and view of life do you have and how that affects your therapy that wasn't a major a focus. I wasn't, in fact, that wasn't a focus at all. We were, to, we were focused at there on the technique, and I was thinking much more about, my God, I'm coming in with a whole different perspective, whether you're Catholic or you're Protestant or you're Muslim or whatever you are, and what your race is, that, that skews you, that, that, that gives you a, a different perspectives on what is a problem. And in fact, what is a solution? What's an appropriate way of working with a family? Uh, you really have to be thinking about their, their cultural, their social cultural uh, perspective. And that just came naturally to me. And so then I began to incorporate that into my work, but child guidance wasn't that interested in it. So I began to just incorporate that into the, my private work and into the workshops and writing that I was doing outside the clinic. Um, and it, it, it grew and, and developed from there. Uh, and the gift that I got one, once I got invited to, uh, to teach at, uh, at Drexel, uh, even though I started with the structural family therapy and, you know, I, I, um, I, I told them I was really developing this whole notion about working with, with the self and being really more conscious of it. And, and uh, a woman named Marlene Watson uh, became the head of the training program there, and she's African-American. And I told her about it, and she listened to me, and she said, I'm really interested in that. She said, why don't you come and teach it? And so I said, you know, Marlene, the problem is if I just teach a, a class of it, it's not going to make any difference because if nobody else knows about it, your, your other teachers who are teaching all the various methods of, of doing therapy, different models, um, they're not going to integrate it. It's, it's just not going to happen. So she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I, what, if you want me to teach it, I would need to meet with the faculty of the MFT program and have them have an experience with me of what it's like to do, uh, to learn what I'm trying to teach. She said, you want me to get the faculty together and present on our own personal issues in relation to the work we're doing? I said, yes. She said, we're going to do it. 
So she called the faculty in. The faculty was relatively small, like five, six people, the full-time faculty. And then Marlene, God bless her, she said, I'll be the first one to present. And she was the head of the, uh, of the program. And so she presented on supervision of, that she was doing with, with, a, uh, uh, with a student. And then she presented on her own issues that came up in her work with, with that student. And I helped her to, to identify that. And, and then I, and what I was pushing for is that, listen, uh, you know, Sigmund Freud, Virginia Satir, Murray Bowen, they all address the person of the therapist in some form or another, but what they basically did was, they, they, their premise was, we do not want the therapist whether it's counter-transfers we're talking about or simply when you're working systemically and you're part of the system, we don't want the therapist to um, contaminate the process with their own personal issues. So let's do some work with them uh, and help them to resolve their issues, whether it's through the didactic analysis or a month-long with, with Virginia or coaching with Murray Bowen. It was to resolve your issues with your family so that, or with yourself so that then you would not then bring all that stuff into the work that you're doing with your, with your clients. Um, well, you know, uh, my problem was that I had already gone through my analysis and I had had the, the vision that, well, I'm going to go through psychoanalysis, I'm going to work out all my issues. Well, I didn't work out all my issues. You know, I became much more conscious of them. Uh, much more aware, much able to be more responsible for it. And what came to me is that, you know, the very fact that I, I, when I sit down with a disadvantaged family, the very fact that I've been there, my family was poor, okay? We had major family problems that I had to deal with at home that profoundly affected me. Okay, well, when I sit down with these families, we're talking the same thing. I know what they're talking about, and they know that, that I know what they're talking about. It, what, well, what's happening? What's happening is that I can empathize with them because I'm very aware of my own stuff, and I'm very connected to my own stuff, and, I, and, be, and through my own woundedness, I can relate to their woundedness. I know the wound. I know what it feels like. Okay, and what, what does that do? That opens me up then to be really sensitive to and have into and be able to intuit what it is that they're trying to communicate to me. Well, you know, I did that with, with the white families uh, in, in, uh, in, in Kansas at Menegers by learning to relate to their humanity through my own humanity. Well, when I work with the disadvantaged families, I did that also, but I did that taking into, into account the community and the effect of the community and our society on our personal problems and our family problems. Okay, so, so that I thought, you know, if we're going to do the best possible work that we should be able to do as therapists, we need to be able to take advantage of our own life experience, including the pain and hurt of it, maybe even especially because of the pain and hurts that, that we have, because that opens us up to be able to resonate with our client's pain and hurt. Right. So this personal woundedness, this ability to form a connection, a therapeutic alliance for you and your p clinical experience was just as powerful, if not more, than any technique or model-driven change that the field was pushing at the time. So you're really kind of tapping into these common factors ahead of your time. What, how did, was that received by the field in large? And how, well, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, at child guidance, it was ignored. Okay. So I, I could not, I, I, I really, I, I tried talking about it there, but it, it was, it was simply ignored. Uh, so I took it out on the road when I was doing my workshops. People were inviting me to do workshops because of, of my publications, and they knew about me that way, so I was able to do it that way. Then I was able, then because Marlene, I did believe because Marlene Watson is African-American, she knew what I was talking about when I was talking about 
you know, the, the un really relating to people in their, in their own context, not just family, but their, their community context, she understood that instinctively. And she said, okay, we're going to incorporate that in, into the training of all these students at, at Drexel when they come in. Um, and she made that foundational to the, uh, to the introduction to how to become a family therapist. You know. Many students will be listening to this podcast that have only read about you in books, and they are both uh, professionally young, sometimes chronologically young, and sometimes they have a very different background, both uh, socioeconomic status, educational status, than the clients that they see, Harry. How would you help a young MFT who maybe is a, mi uh, is a majority working with a minority population uh, connect to this sense of humanity and personal woundedness? Because we'll have a lot of times, sometimes they say, fake it till you make it, or young therapists feel like they need to act in an expert role, which is really counterintuitive to what we're talking about. How would you help a young therapist connect to this humanity that you're speaking of? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing of, uh, at Drexel is that we have students coming in. Um, most of them are in their 20s, sometimes 30s, sometimes 40s, okay? Most of them are younger people. But we not only, but we have, uh, and because, because the, uh, the Drexel program had a, has had a, a big emphasis on social justice, we've had also faculty that was minority faculty, okay? They, they uh, Marlene Watson recruited them, and, and they've continued to, re to recruit them. Uh, so we, we had a faculty that was that was um, receptive uh, to this concept, and I don't know how it, the word got around, but we have students. I mean, right now I have students from uh, Saudi Arabia, from Israel, from uh, uh, Formosa, from China, um, uh, from Africa, uh, as well as from you know all parts of the United States. So we have a real mixture of, of people, and this has been traditional since I've been uh, teaching at Drexel, that we had a real mixture of, of, uh, uh, of, of people, and they would come in, and, and I said to them, look, if you're going to understand, what, what uh, this is like boot camp, what I'm going to be doing. We do this with first-year students. I said to them, you know, we have to train you in terms of how you use your own life experience, how you use your own experience when you're sitting down and engaging with families, how you think about them, how you see them, how you relate to them emotionally. We have to train you to be able to use the person that you are, okay, to be able to relate to them. Then you can take all of these uh, models of therapy, you know, that, and, and all the, that we know about psychopathology, uh, what we know about attachment theory and all the various other kinds of, of, of therapeutic approaches. They, they have all kinds of techniques, they have all kinds of wonderful things. These are the tools that you'll be using, but you are, you're the one who's playing the Stradivarius, you know, and, 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 and it's your personal skill that's going to make that Stradivarius work. And what, what I'm doing, trying to do with you, is to get you to a place where you can really make use of your own humanity and your own life experience, you can make use of that within your professional role. And how do we do that? I said, well, the way, one thing is we're going to be doing that as a community. And, and the very first thing that we're going to do, and, and I insist is that the classes be small. So the classes will be 10, 12 people. Um, and then we'll break it up to, into sections and we have more students. So we have two sections right now at, uh, at Drexel. Uh, and what we're going to do, the first thing I'm going to ask is each of you to take turns to sit down with me and my co-leader in, 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 in the class, and we're going to help you and to identify your own personal issues and to talk about them publicly so that you can get an understanding of them, your own issues, you can get an understanding of how they function in your life, and then you can be thinking about how they may be an asset for you, as well as a, a, an impediment for you in your work clinically. 
okay? And then, you know, so that, well, for the students, for the young students, it's like, you, you're not serious. You really, I'm going to talk about my problems and hang-ups in the front of my cohort? I said, absolutely. You know, well, you know, well, I guess they, they did what they were supposed to do, and they, and we just took turns so that, so that I gave each one of them a chance for about an hour to sit down with me and my co-leader, and would, they would write up their own issue. These are my issues. This is my family background that contributed to this issue, and this is how I think, you know, my life experience may affect my clinical work in negative ways and possibly in positive ways. And I try to make it a safe environment where they could talk about their issues in such a way that they got the basic, basic message that I was trying to get across. And what's the basic message? The basic message is, you know something? We're all wounded. There are no exceptions. We all have our issues. I have my issues. You have your issues. We all have our issues. And, but the thing is that you know, we may want to hide that when we get out in society, but as therapists, we have to relate to people's brokenness, to their hurts, okay, to their disappointments, okay, and how best to relate to, the, to that brokenness except through our own. We're going to resonate with that, and if we can resonate with that through our own brokenness, we really will get into, you know, the very core of what our clients are experiencing, Okay, we'll understand it. We'll be able to intuit it, you know, because they're wounded, we're wounded. And, and there's a common humanity there that makes it possible for us to relate to people if we could take into consideration their culture and their differences and all of that. Okay, that's, that's all part of who they are, but we have ours, and we take all of that into consideration. Then we have entree into their life struggles. Almost like you have to be comfortable sharing and coming to terms with your own vulnerability before you'd expect a client or a system to share their vulnerability with you. Right, because what happens then by the by the every student gets a chance to do that and 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 what begins to happen is that you know one student presents and these are my issues la da da and then what I ask the the students who are observing I said, I want each of you now to respond, to give feedback to the person who presented. But, you know, I don't want you to comment on their presentation. I want you to comment on when they talked about their issues and their struggles and how they, that might relate to their clinical work. I want you to say what you said about yourself in this situation brought up for me my memories and thoughts about my issues and how I struggle, and this is what I came up with. So that each person in the group then can say, yeah, I can identify with you because I have this issue of mine, I have this issue of mine, I have this issue of mine. So then they begin to immediately experience among themselves the universality of the human human vulnerability. Right, if I can do this for myself first and then with my peers, then it will be easier for me to connect to the humanity of clients. I, I, exactly. I now, what did Sal, obviously you remained in contact and he passed away not that long ago, what did Sal Mnuchin think of the evolution, uh, not only echo-structural, but this self-of-therapist, person-of-therapist work? Well, he ignored it for years. <laughs> um, and then a few years ago, um, I wrote an article and, and, uh, and speaking about family therapy and such, and, but from the perspective of the use of self and of the pot model that I had. And then uh, I, get, I get an email from, from Sal. You didn't mention me. You didn't give me any credit. Well, Sal, you know, never interested in this, uh, in this dimension of the work. Every time I talk about structural family therapy, I always give you primary, you know, recognition. Uh, so he didn't respond to that. Well, I don't know if you, if you, if you pick up the, um, uh, I guess it was uh, last year's um, one of the issues of of the um, psychotherapy networker. Uh, uh, magazine, and he had an article there. It was the last article that he that was that he published there, 
And what did he say in that article? He said in that article, you know, I spent my early years all focused on technique, and I've come to realize that it's really the relationship that makes a difference in therapy. Wow. Okay. There's a validation (laughs) for your work uh, and what you have been doing. Now, if if, if, uh, somebody out there is interested in learning more about the person of therapist model, uh, your book came out not that long ago. Tell us uh, where, if someone has not been trained in this way initially and wants to learn more, where they can find out more about what you're speaking of. Well, you know, the, the book is out, and um, um, uh, it's, you know, the person of the therapist training model, uh, Mastering the Use of Self is the title of the book. Um, if You can get it on Amazon. You can... Um, you can get it on my website, harryjaponte.com, and it tells you, you know, you can get it from the publisher, um, or you can get it from, from Amazon itself. Uh, and what it does is, it, um, it, it's the whole course that we do here at, uh, at Drexel. Um, we have three quarters, and it explains how we've, we uh, help the students be, get in touch with their own personal issues, begin to see their issues as normal. This is part of normal part of life. And then in the second quarter, we get them to do role plays and bring in videotapes so then we can show them how it actually really does play out, whether they're aware of it or not. They personally are always present in the work that they do. And then in the last, final quarter, we have them work with simulated families, with actors who are trained to be families and clients and we do life supervision and we supervise them in in making an intervention with these families but also making an intervention with themselves and and I say to the students when you sit down with that family I only want you to think of one thing at the beginning you know not the problem but the relationship if you don't form a relationship if they don't trust you if they don't open up to you if you don't if you don't resonate with them you're not going to be succeed in anything else that you do. If you can make that, reson- that resonance with them and really get them, then you can use all those wonderful skills that you're being trained to, get to, to use from your other classes, and we give them an, a, a, an opportunity to put that in practice. Correct. If you don't have an alliance, it doesn't matter how technically proficient you are, how many models you know, it, it will not stick. When you think of, you know, you listening to you you have spanned the origin of the field and have found a way in your evolution in your person of therapist model to evolve your thinking and your work and stay current uh what do you want uh to be most remembered for in your professional legacy harry and what if anything do you still want to accomplish in your career well you know i'm i'm still working on on this use of self, you know, because it, 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 it's, it's not, um, it was like I didn't invent it, okay? Freud started it when, when he required his, his students to undergo their own analysis. He was conscious of, you know, you're there and you're a factor in what happens in therapy. Uh, Virginia brought it to, uh, in, brought it in, and Murray Bowen brought it into family therapy and they used their own way of, of helping students to try to address their own issues. Okay, wh- what I'm trying to do is to say, these issues of yours, this life experience of yours, this pain of yours, okay, these things that you're so embarrassed about, these are the very things that are going to help you to really resonate and understand other people's pain and hurt. In other words, your life experience with all of this pain is an asset if you know how to use it. And so what, what I am working on and what I hope will be useful to, for other people uh, is to develop the idea of how do, how do we get, in, get to understand ourselves, how do we get comfortable with, with being in touch with our own painful memories, painful experiences, with our own inadequacies, and then how can we then take that and really incorporate it and integrate it into the various therapeutic models in such a way that we bring life and effectiveness to those models. And, and I am working on that. We're doing research on that. 
We're trying to expand on it. I'm trying to make it something that people can really break down and understand and actually train and learn to do. Because I would read um, Carl Rogers, and, and he would say, be present with the family. I'd read Virginia Satir. She'd say, be present with the family. Be authentic with the families. And I'm looking at that, I'm saying, that sounds terrific, but what does it mean? You know, how do I break that down, and then how do I get myself to do that? And what I'm trying to do is to break that all down into, into ways that we can understand what are the mechanics of that. How does that actually work? And what do I have to do with myself in order to be able to do that? And what kind of training do I need? What kind of supervision do I need? So I want to make that very specific. I want to make it understandable. I want to make it so that people can actually put their hands around it and use themselves as active and effective tools in the work that they do. Yes, to operationalize these self of therapist factors and these therapeutic alliance relationship factors uh, so that these models come alive. I think that's wonderful. How, how do you want to be uh, remembered, Harry? What is you would you like to, to to be your professional legacy? Well, if 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 this can catch on, uh, I would be delighted that I made that contribution. You know, that's, I mean, that's it's really important to me. I because I think it's important to the work that we do as therapists. It certainly is. And I thank you so much for your time today. And I encourage all of our listeners, whether you're a, a student, therapist in training, or you're more seasoned, we can always, listening to Dr. Aponte today, we can always learn more about our own experience, our humanness, our personal woundedness that creates this connection with the clients and the systems we work with, both clients that have similar backgrounds to us and those that have very different backgrounds. So I really appreciate the time today, and uh, thank you for joining us, Harry. And There you have it. In his own words, Harry J. Aponte. I'd like to reference those two books that he mentioned. First one, Bread and Spirit, Therapy with the New Poor, all about working with socially, economically disadvantaged systems. And The Person of the Therapist Training Model, Mastering the Use of Self. And you can also go to harryjaponte.com. And you can see a 90-minute video overview to this person of therapist training model. Here on the AAMFT podcast, we're bringing you pioneers as well as the latest and greatest in trends affecting systemic therapy. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. We're there. Please send us a line. The email is communications at aamft.org. Follow the conversation on Twitter. The handle is at the AAMFT, and I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Always fun being with you. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic. <laughs>